0: Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
1: Welcome to Episode 391 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adler, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is Data Ethics in Medical Research and Healthcare, UK and Canada Compared. In February 2015, the UK's Nuffield Council on Bioethics published a report that examined governance and ethics of research done in ways that pit people's privacy against the public interest. The report set out ethical principles for the design and governance of research of this nature. For example, the report asserted that respect for participants, uh, we might call them subjects in research, of research or in research, it asserted that respect for these people and protection of their data is central. It highlighted approaches to seeking consent and anonymizing data. It stipulated accountability backed up by good governance and then it proposed several things like researching harm arising from the abuses of data and then in research into methods of continuing vigilance. Um, it proposed monitoring and evaluating hazards and potential benefits of policies. Uh, interesting idea there if I may comment that um, policies may have hazards. Um, It proposed mapping of flows of data in research, ensuring that privacy breaches are reported promptly to the individuals affected, imposing robust penalties, including imprisonment, for the deliberate misuse of data, whether or not it results in demonstrable harm to individuals. Creating, here's another one from the report. Creating an independent, broadly representative group to develop a public statement of about how data held by government and agencies should be used, and it basically proposed implementing. Audit trails, that is audit trails of everyone who has been given access to the research data, audit trails of uses of the research data, and audit trails that should be made available to all individuals to whom the data relate or to relevant authorities. And I think they mean by that, you know, organizations that have some responsibility to oversee what's going on in the research. Now, all of these reasons is why our topic, Data ethics in medical research and healthcare, UK and Canada compared, is so important for family caregivers and family members. To discuss it, our guest is Michael Vaughan. Michael is a lawyer and the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. She's been an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. She's also been an adjunct professor professor at the University's School of Library Archival and Information Studies, where she teaches information ethics and intellectual freedom. She's a regular guest instructor for the University's College of Health Disciplines Interdisciplinary Elective in HIV-AIDS-AIDS Care. She's a frequent speaker on a variety of Of civil liberties topics including privacy, national security, patient rights, policing, surveillance and free speech. And she's a former board member of the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network and an advisory board member of Privacy International. So welcome to the show, Michael. Oh,
2: lovely to be here.
1: Great. First question for you, please. Please tell us how civil liberties relate to ethical principles in medical research.
2: Michael? Well, um, medical research ethics, um, human rights, and civil liberties all share the core principle that you've already mentioned, which is respect. Um, That is, at a minimum, treating people as ends and not means. Um, most of our rights and ethics map onto this notion of respect for people. So we see, for example, respecting the dignity of the person is inherently a part of our equality rights. And autonomy, our right to make our own decisions for ourselves, um, which we see in the medical sphere, of course, is that critically important concept of informed consent. That's part of our broader right to liberty, which is, of course, an absolutely core civil liberties value and one of our constitutional Constitutional rights, And then privacy and confidentiality, again, are core medical and medical research ethics principles and are also core civil liberties values. Um, and significantly, they are protected in Canada. Um, by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which doesn't include the word privacy, uh, but our privacy uh, is protected in that regard as security of the person and also our right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. So civil liberties and medical research ethics um, share these fundamental principles, but they also share the principle that there is more than one good. And that means that where rights or social goods are competing or intention, which is not at all unusual, we need to find an appropriate balancing. And there are tests and analyses and criteria of um, various kinds to guide what the balancing exercise would be in all of these fields.
1: Right. Now, next one, please tell us how Civil liberties relate to governance of medical research, and maybe you could just add a word of what really in practice is meant by governance in that context.
2: Michael? Well, I'm glad you asked that, um, because so often we have really what are a terrific set of guidelines or regulations, and we have actually no way of knowing whether they're really being adhered to, and no effective remedies if they aren't. So um, governance is more robust than simply having a list of things that are supposed to happen. Um, A few different civil liberties principles come into play with respect to governance, and one that may be kind of surprising to many people, very downstream, is fundamentally an access to information. Uh, And what we mean by that, sometimes people are confused, they say, oh, civil libertarians, they want both access to information and privacy, which is it? Um, the, The trick to understanding here is to distinguish between personal information of individuals, which we say requires privacy and protection, and Government, the government information, which we say should be generally public. So individuals have a right to be private, but governments do not. And a democratic government must be transparent and accountable. So first off, in terms of governance, what you need is the right to access information, not only about what the system of governance is, but in fact how it's working that's key. Um, Also key, of course, is the second civil liberties principle is due process. And due process is just like a fancy way of saying fair process. In terms of governance, a fair process has a number of elements. um, And the more important the question that's being decided, the higher your due process rights and protections are. So on a very basic level in terms of governance, due process includes having an impartial and unbiased decision-making process, which usually means impartial and unbiased decision makers, and an appropriate means of getting your side of the story across and perhaps having a fair opportunity for addressing the arguments on the other side. Those are just some rudimentary basic outlines of things that are incorporated when we say governance includes fair process or due process.
1: Right. Now, please tell us how civil liberties relate to harm, or sometimes people call use the plural harms associated with medical research.
2: Michael. Well, I suppose building a bit on this notion that we have need and more, we have need of more than just a great-sounding list of values and things that we're supposed to do. Um, in order to be meaningful, your rights must have a remedy if they are violated. So it's not just enough to promise or try very hard. Where harms occur, there needs to be a means of holding to account, and to the extent possible, providing a remedy for the person harmed. Um, but in the civil liberties. Purview, we say not only that we must address harms um, after they happen; it's also civil liberties value to um, avoid harms in the first place. So, for example, we are extremely keen on watchdogs, ombudspersons, auditors. Um, the whole notion of independent review and oversight is uh, central to our um, our worldview and the review and oversight we say must be ongoing because well frankly the potential for harms are is ongoing and sometimes not discovered until quite downstream so i you know i, I think in in terms of of review that is underway right now in the um, Toronto Hospital for Sick, Ch- Sick Children in relation to the Mother Risk Laboratory, is just a stunning example of how the science generated by medical research can result in harms that extend far and wide. And here we have the Ministry of the Attorney General launching a review of five years' worth of testing for illicit substances that was performed in the Hospital of Clinical laboratory. And the review was launched after serious concerns were raised, in fact, in a lawsuit um, about the test reliability and, in fact, the wrong testing standards being applied. And so here although we have harms that are understandable in medical research, psychological harms or physical harms, the, the the mother lab, or sorry, the mother risk laboratory scandal is really illustrating the potential for terrible harms that go beyond even those. And that includes the harms of potentially wrongful conviction, or in this case, many people wrongfully having lost the custody of their children. So, And the bottom line here is that science, if you will, can just as easily create harms as alleviate them, and we need to have constant vigilance on that front.
1: And that goes a little bit back, doesn't it, to the point that you made earlier, which is about getting the balance right. Uh, That is, government always should be held to account, individuals and be open, and individuals Uh, should be protected where the protection is really necessary. Now, I may not have stated you quite fully on that, but it seems to me that the basic message uh, that you said earlier applies to all the three, three questions I've just asked you. Just very quickly, am I right?
2: Absolutely. There's more than one good, and they have to mesh up.
1: Right. Super. Now, we've reached the time where we take a short break, This, Michael, is where I always say we have to pay the rent. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Azalea, and my guest is Michael Vaughan. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
0: yeah are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
1: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Data Ethics in Medical Research and Healthcare, UK and Canada Compared. Now, Michael, let's talk about the most challenging of the challenges to civil liberties created for individuals who are the subject of medical research in Canada. So, first question, what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges to respect for individuals who are the subject of medical research?
2: Well, I I think the biggest challenge is um, the matter of informed consent and Two issues arise when we talk about informed consent. One is how hard it is to get truly informed consent, and the second, uh, as you've already alluded to, is this huge drive in medical research to use existing medical data um, without consent. So um, to the first point, which is informed consent, this is a concept that just simply requires a lot of unpacking, uh, it's obvious, of course, that consent can't be coerced or demanded or uh, obtained by fraud. That's uh, that's not a surprise to us. And there there truly are and have been over the decades um, just amazingly egregious cases that have come to light um, around consent. I think, for example, of um, the investigative journalist Robert Whitaker, who in the late 1990s in a series for the, Blo- the Boston Globe um, looked at a, a series of – Psychiatric experiments on more than 2,000 patients in which drugs were administered or withheld with the expectation of their worsening the symptoms of the research participants. Uh, you know, it's simply impossible that thousands of people would have properly consented to procedures actually anticipated and expected to worsen their condition. So, so we see Again, um, some rare occurrences of these really horrendous cases. But in addition to these kind of dire situations, there's also a question of really what we might call subtler power dynamics, like undue influence or incentives that raise red flags in the, con- in the context of um, respect for individuals and consent. And, and I think, you know, from my, my own home Hometown, here where I am in Vancouver, of an example of incentivized HIV testing that was allowed to take place in an area of town called the downtown East Side, which is often cited as the poorest postal code in Canada, and testing fairs, these um, events in which um, music was played and various things were happening when you could get an HIV test this all happened affiliated with a vast research project. Um, They were offering gift cards and free meals to those who were willing to undergo HIV testing. Now, obviously, in a more affluent neighborhood, such incentives may not actually sway individuals, but in a poverty-ridden area, they may well. So when we talk about voluntariness and respect for individuals, we really need to be alive um, to the real and contextual power dynamics at play. Um, So the informed part of informed consent, um, not only the, the autonomy part or the voluntariness part, but the informed part is also, it's tricky. Um, prospective research participants need to be provided with plain language descriptions of all the reasonably foreseeable risks and potential benefits, um, but that, as many people will tell you, is essentially easier said than done, and we, in general, have a terrible time actually conceptualizing risk. Um, so in order to, to explain that appropriately and to actually be understood, um, as I say, you've, you've, you've got a task at hand.
4: Right.
1: Now, next question, very much along the same lines, but what do you see, Michael, as the most challenging of the challenges to trust on the part of individuals who are the subject of medical research? Michael?
2: Well, trust, as you can imagine, is absolutely central, and I think uh, in addition to all of the things that we've already alluded to, um, trusting that you and your data are already properly cared for and respected, I I think it's arguable that one of the biggest challenges to trust on the part of individuals who would like to participate in medical research is actually the question of conflict of interest. Um, At least in my view, Canadians, I think, have a very generous sense of wanting to contribute to the public good, and um, many people will happily volunteer and seek volunteer opportunities to advance research that they believe will advance the public interest and help others. But we really are increasingly aware that not all medical research advances the public interest uh depending on who's funding the study and what vested interests are involved uh important research findings the research that you may have participated in can be effectively manipulated massaged or even buried so that rather than advancing the public interest the findings you were supposed to be helping to ad- to advance are actually doing the opposite of the intended effect um, so, uh, you know, these, these we might call kind of sins of commission where research is um, misconducted or there's ghostwriting, conflict of interest. But there's also, if you will, sort of sins of omission, like um, the deeply troubling fact that Health Canada won't give complete information to medical doctors about the drugs they are legally allowed to prescribe. So this is a recent Toronto Star story. Um, where a Toronto doctor wanting to get more informed prescribing decisions, make more informed prescribing decisions about a popular drug taken for morning sickness, sought information through um, Health Canada about this drug. Now, after three and a half years of runaround, three and a half years, the doctor was given a package of documents, over half of which, more than 200 pages, were censored. Now, this is because new drug safety legislation that enables the Minister of Health to make such disclosures nonwithstanding, Health Canada still takes the position that it must consult with drug companies about such disclosures in order to protect their, quote-unquote, confidential business information. Well, you know, as Matthew Herder, an assistant professor at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Medicine, has said about this case, this isn't about proprietary information. It's about clinical information. And his quote is, at the end of the day, it wouldn't have been but for people giving up their bodies in research trials that we have this information. So, you know, you look at this and you think, how would the public-spirited women who participated in these clinical trials feel, knowing that the information they help generate for patient safety isn't being disclosed to doctors? Um, It's those kind of trust Issues that are, I think, increasingly making people um, suspect about what it is they are actually participating in.
1: Now, again, it's the same same style of question, but this time it's Michael. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges arising from harm or harms to individuals who are the subject of medical research,
2: Michael? <laughs> Well, um, there are three uh, Canadian federal research agencies, including the Canadian Institute of Health Research um, (CIHR), as everyone refers to it, that use what are called the Tri Council Policy Statements on. Ethical Conduct for Research Involving Humans, and that document, um, the Must Read for Medical Research Ethics in Canada, um, sets out guidelines, for example, uh, uh, about ethics review and approval of research by uh, research ethics boards. So, and that that approach through um, the tri-council policy calls for the adoption of a proportional approach to research ethics review, which is inherently a weighing and balancing of potential risks and potential harms. So when they look at harms, they say, well, we want to know the magnitude and the seriousness of the harm, and then we want to know how likely it is um, that a potential harm would occur. And when they're talking about harms, they're talking about a range of harms um, at the Kind of minimal end, or the less serious end, things like inconvenience, um, but certainly at the most more significant end of the spectrum, major physical injury or emotional trauma, and even non-physical harms, like the loss of life opportunities that could flow from a breach of confidentiality of sensitive information. And one of the challenges here when we deal with this question is the real tendency for researchers and oversight to overstate the benefits of research and to really under, undersell or really misunderstand the potential for harms. Uh, and I think you could argue that it's a kind of research blind spot that urgently needs addressing. And um, the the report that you were um, speaking of, the recent report out of the UK on bioethics, um, It, I think, gets the formulation exactly right when it calls for research into the potential harms associated with the abuse of biological and health data, as well as its benefits. We really need to make this visceral to the people who are doing the weighing and balancing. Um, And certainly, if you consider the kinds of harms that could flow from a violation of confidentiality, while we may say, you, you know, you really need to understand the context, there are also some things that can be set out, I think, in fairly bold terms. You don't have to be too specialized to understand that if there is a breach of um, genetic information, for example, highly sensitive. Um, we in Canada are in a situation where Canada has effectively no laws, none, that protect against genetic discrimination. So with no protection once the information is ultimately disclosed, um, if that were to happen, a violation of confidentiality in this regard, you're talking about a person um, whose um, employment or their access to life and disability and critical care insurance are now impacted um, detrimentally. And exactly how does a person address such uh, such an incident? How, How do we deal with those harms in Canada? Unfortunately, we are essentially on our own. Um, there is there is no compensation system that sees to that expressly. So um, so we have a real uh, a real gap that needs urgently addressing here.
1: Now, can I just ask you to say just a little bit more about the d- genetic situation because uh, access to my genetic makeup, my genome, right now, is also access to my offspring. I'm speaking in general terms, this applies to everybody, and therefore it's not just my privacy that's being, as you say, um, abused, if I can use that word, you didn't use it. Um, it's also that of the people that follow on from me, my genetic uh, progeny. Do you agree with what I've just said?
2: Uh- Absolutely and it's one of the discussions that good that's going on right now um, about how to best protect genetic information um, I was I hope I was careful to specify that these kinds of discriminations can occur once a privacy breach occurs and the information has landed in the wrong hands or gets exposed prior to that genetic information is merely protected by um, the usual statutory privacy provisions uh, around health information or indeed, public information, public, public sector information. Um, the problem with that is that, one, the statute is much more porous than you think, and two, as you've indicated, there are a number of places where genetic information um, seems to have heightened sensitivity, especially around issues like the familial context. So the argument is that we need some genetic exceptionalism, in terms of generic health information or generic public sector personal information because of exactly the the uniqueness that genetic information presents in terms of privacy challenges.
1: Right. Now, once more, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
0: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
1: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Data Ethics in Medical Research and Healthcare, UK and Canada Compared. Michael, now let's talk about the effectiveness of Canada's efforts to respond to the most challenging of the challenges to civil liberties. In other words, the things you were talking about in the last segment, challenges created for individuals who are the subjects of medical research in Canada. So first question is, how do you view view the effectiveness of Canada's efforts to respond to the most challenging of the challenges, the ones that you've identified, for individuals who are I'm going to call them the subject of medical research in Canada.
2: Michael? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly want to acknowledge that there may be all kinds of discussions occurring that I, I'm not aware of. Um, but I can say, at least from the perspective of what we might call the official reports being generated that I'm aware of, that Canada is just nowhere close to effectively grappling with these issues. Um, you know, if I take for example, uh the fact that I keep seeing reports coming out just full of enthusiasm for the potential benefits of um, data mining health databases for research, um, and these consistently um, will cite uh, patient privacy and uh, patient protection as values, but if you actually read the report, they reveal in the body of the report of you that um, risks are really minimal, um, measures like de-identification should be sufficient, and they're they're very bland about potential harms, and, and, you know, when you see something like this in a a very um, uh, important official report, that just kind of throws in de-identification as the fix-it-all notion, um, which for privacy uh, advocates is somewhere along the continuum between highly contested and entirely discredited, um, you know, <laughs> yes. simply because the richer the data set, the harder it is to effectively de-identify it, right? So you see these kind of bland statements. Um, you are discouraged about how real the concern is about patient privacy and, and um Patient protection. But I think, I think an even bigger question is not just the routine minimization of risk, which we've already discussed in this kind of sense of oversimplifying what might be an effective risk mitigation. I, I think in Canada we're not having the bigger ethical discussion that we really need to have in order to get out of this inadequate risk-based approach. And this is where I think that the report coming out of the UK, uh, the UK from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, uh, just nails it. They advocate really a new model of just not minimizing risk to research subjects, but of working on the principle of optimizing the balance and distribution of risks and potential benefits. Because if you you think about our current model, it's one in which essentially researchers, um, well, rather, the immediate benefits from research accrue, quite frankly, to researchers and the industry that's hoping to make money off the research, Um, their business and professional interests are definitely being advanced instantly. Meanwhile, the societal benefits, which are supposed to flow, trickle down in the form of social goods, um, advances in knowledge and practice, which will eventually improve patient outcomes. So the equation is obvious immediate benefits on one side, but risk borne on the other side which may eventually trickle down. Now, I I, I happen to agree that this is an equation that almost no one could see as ethical. We simply need a better balance of risks and benefits, and that means we need to get the public, the research subjects, and patients a place at the table to decide on some of our research priorities. Um, we need to stop telling people what the public interest is, and we, start, we need to start listening um, to what they believe the public interest is. And I, I, I do understand that in tiny pockets this is happening, but we are far, far away from the mainstream of research when we just talk about this model. Right.
1: Now, next one, your view of the effectiveness of Canada's ef- efforts to respond to the most challenging of the challenges um, – to trust on the part of individuals who are the subjects of medical research? Trust.
2: Michael? Well, you know, I I honestly don't think the research community really appreciates how badly public trust is eroding in relation to medical research. Um, You know, obviously, there are still discrete demographics of um, uh, affected individuals and their families who are busy raising money for research um, to and that all kinds of diseases. Um, people are working hard, researchers are working hard, uh, and that's all to the good. Um, but that said, there really are these disturbing patterns and trends in the politicization and the industry influence and research that even just casually interested people cannot help but see fairly starkly. Um, so to take a Canadian example, uh, Canada was among the first countries in the world to recognize a constitutional right to reasonable access to medical cannabis for qualifying patients. So there we are, we're the first out of the starting gate, but only because of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there was a decision in court that mandated that. And the government's response to that decision has been wholly inadequate. Um, there currently exists, in fact, much more medical research on cannabis than the government claims, but there are still really um, serious gaps in the research. And not to put to find a point on it, the government just doesn't want to do that research, um, they keep saying that they're not going to endorse, endorse cannabis as a medication because there's not enough research, and then they refuse to do the research. So, it, it really is hardly surprising that the tens of thousands of Canadian patients who benefit from medical cannabis, and I'm talking about cancer patients, people living with HIV, people with chronic pain, etc., do not believe that what is at issue is the public interest. Um, there are some medical cannabis studies that do manage to get funded, but it's just nowhere near what's needed. And, and that's just one example of how public trust is eroding in this understanding that really um, here what they're not um, mistrusting are the researchers themselves, but really the priorities and the politicalization of the broader medical research agenda. Um, I, I think that has become um, a concern of really even just completely average average citizens.
1: Now, let's go to the harms, harm that we've talked about before. And I'm asking you, it's the same question. How do you view the effectiveness of Canada's efforts to respond to those challenges, the challenging challenges arising from harms created to individuals who are the subjects of medical research?
2: Michael? Well, I have to say I'm not personally aware of any measures that are being taken in this direction. Um, As I say, there's a huge push right now for researchers to get their hands on more and more medical data and to link that data with all kinds of other information about us to make linkages and connections and discoveries, ultimately, hopefully, um, that are supposed to bring us immense benefits. But anyone who's been paying attention to this arena um, has every reason in the world to be deeply skeptical, um, in part because the enthusiasm for the medical researchers, um, big data as it's known, their big data mission, is so thundering. That enthusiasm is so thundering that It's just drowning out any arguments about harms. And I don't mean just arguments about harms, I also mean evidence of harms. So to give you to give you a very, very um Pointed example: The um, CDC Center for Disease Control did a study quite recently that showed that 31% of people would find it a barrier to accessing sexual health services if that information were sent into uh, a centralized database that had wider accessibility, an EHR, an electronic health record. 31% would find it now difficult to achieve access to this primary care service. And that mirrors almost exactly um, data coming out of the UK, 27% in that case. Um, But the point here is that the centralization of this data is really all about research. It's all about research. And yet there is effectively zero interest in the fact that in creating this research, ultimately research repository, there is a demonstrable, we have the data, a demonstrable barrier to accessing those health services. So it's the research agenda really taking a priority over something that we should consider very, very basic. Um, virtually nowhere do I see harms that are occurring in this realm being appropriately addressed, given the kind of weight that they deserve, ensuring that in our rush to produce a good through medical research that we are not actually harming the very people we were hoping to benefit.
1: Michael, there are some researchers, and um, I know of none in Canada. They may exist, but I can't identify anybody in particular. But there are researchers who are sufficiently concerned about the harms to be calling for a cessation on the following... Process whereby um, genetic m- manipulation, if I can call it that, is effected on individuals um, who've displayed through the tests of their genetics um, some propensity to some serious illness. And what some of these researchers are saying is that type of work is harmful, we don't know enough about its consequences, and it should be stopped. Now, first of all, how do you, how do you respond to what um, I've summarised? And secondly, are you aware of anything in Canada that's going on along those
2: lines? Michael? I don't know of anything in Canada to tell you the truth. Um, whenever I am looking for a, um, a statement about what's happening in genetic research, or the um, collection of genetic data, et cetera, et cetera. My go-to, I have to say, is the U.K. here, and that's GeneWatch um, in the yes. U.K. Uh, I, I would look to them for the kinds of analyses that would say, have we sufficient information, um, one, to understand the harms, to disclose the harms if we were um, going to do this research and again, is, is the research ethical on the weighing and balancing of all of those factors? Um, I have to say it doesn't surprise me that there is um, that there are debates within what we might call the research community. It's a quite diverse community, uh, in, at least in, in my interactions with them, and I know that there are um, internal debates that the public may not be privy to. I, I think... Part of the problem here is that those internal debates really need to be made external. Um, this is this is information that is um, collected and um, systems that are developed meant to advance the public interest. We can't keep the public out of them. So even where we're having a debate, that fact should be given much more airtime than we see currently.
1: Right. Now, once more, it's the tyranny of time. We have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Heatherly. and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
0: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
1: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Data Ethics in Medical Research and Healthcare, UK and Canada Compared. Now, Michael, now I want you to talk about what more you would like to do, you know, through the BC Civil Liberties Association and see done to advance civil liberties in Canada of individuals who are the subjects of medical research. So, first of all, what more would you like to do to advance understanding on the part of the professions of law and medicine of the principles of civil liberties in Canada, for individuals who are the subjects of medical research. Michael?
2: Well, I'm, I'm feeling like I must be the biggest cheerleader for the Nuffield bioethics report. I don't know if they <laughs> need to put me on the payroll. Um, but I certainly would like to see this get some serious airtime in Canada. Um, and in, in essence, what I would like to see is a threshold matter some genuine acknowledgement that we, we have an issue, we have a problem um, I know that we try to take comfort from the fact that there are systems, we have legal systems, we have ethical systems, there are guidelines, but when we look under the hood, we see that those systems are riddled with all of the usual human failings of power politics and bias, biases of all kinds, etc. So what I would like to see, uh, just to give an example, is a serious look at some of the component pieces, like research ethics boards. I've heard in the course of my work, I've heard from people who sit on research ethics boards boards, and they are good people and they are smart people and they are ethical people and they tell me, and I have every reason to believe them, that they are constantly trying to do the right thing and stand up for research subjects' protections. They also tell me that they have a heck of a time working with their fellow board members um, because ultimately what we see constantly is that there are both individual and systemic biases that Consistently overrate the potential benefits of the research and underrate the potential harms for research subjects. So I think before we even get to the starting gate on this, we need to have a proper auditing and accounting of how the system is really working, not how it's supposed to work, but how it really works.
1: Okay, now what more would you like to see done and by whom to advance understanding on the part of individual Canadians of the principles of civil liberties in Canada for people who are the subjects of medical research,
2: Michael? Well, you know, it's an idea I I shop around in a few different forums, but I I think really bringing the interests of researchers and patients together is critical. Um, So in British Columbia, like almost everywhere else, uh, the province wants to get in on the quote-unquote knowledge economy and become a thriving hub of biotech industry. And I think the way to play that for both patients' interests and researchers' interests is to really set out to create a Center for Excellence in Research Ethics. I think our selling point as a province shouldn't be, hey, we've we've absconded with as much patient data as we can possibly legislate our hands on, so researchers and industry come on in. Uh, that's That's a terrible kind of selling point. The selling point should be we are setting up the conditions to do intensive and ethical medical research, and we're going to do it better than anyone else. And that the ethics of research should be just as much a badge of honor in the selling of any given jurisdiction as a tech for bio or as a hub, if you will, for biotech um, than anything else. Uh, And in theory, patients and researchers' interests are together, but in practice, they're not. We need to move them closer.
1: Right. Now, this is a different sort of question, um, which is this. You and I are now recording an episode in which you've discussed a topic that's important for Canadians and their families, and a lot of other people too, who become involved in medical research. The episode, as you know, will be saved in an archive. Now my question is, is this, do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive would be helpful, and if so, how would it be helpful in advancing understanding of Canadians of the importance of civil liberties in medical research? What do you think, Michael?
2: Well, I think the quick answer is absolutely, Um, and the longer answer is something like, well, we're just hard-pressed to find anyone who is, in fact, neutral about this topic. Um, The state of medicine and medical research, it affects everyone. so. We have, I think, a deep-seated belief that it's critical that these matters are, in fact, prioritized for the public interest. And here we are, I believe, truly no longer confident that this is what's happening. So the question of how do we actually ensure that human rights and civil liberties and respect for the dignity of the person are genuinely the guiding principles and not just the lip service principles um, in these arenas, it's really only just starting to see serious mainstream discussion. Up till now, we would have said, oh, we have, the, we have the Nuremberg Code, we have human rights, we have all these things, it's covered. Um, we're starting to see the, the edges fray off of our um, confidence in this arena. So that means that the time is now and that these discussions by all means need to be supported uh, so that we can move towards this new model of effective distribution of risks and benefits. I'm just,
1: this is a little bit of a leading question in a way, but it's, to me, I believe that the experience of individuals, which is an important part of qualitative research, is is important. In other words, tell us what happened to you, I'm not t- talking about you personally, and your medical data when you went to such and so hospital. And that's where I think asking people to talk about what actually happened to them does have value it's a particular form of research and i think it would be helpful in the present circumstances um, just uh, am i speaking a lang- am i speaking about something that you do feel is useful please be sure to tell me if you don't think it's useful
2: michael no I absolutely do think it's useful and as i say we aren't going to change um people's understandings of what the inherent risks truly are unless we present them the data and as i say right. we're we're having a a kind of a, an uphill battle right now because there is some data getting it on um you know to to the right people and getting the impact of it that should be happening um but Do we need more? Of course we need more. We have to make this visceral to people who may not have had the experience themselves.
1: Thank you very much for that. Now, um, we've come to the end of this powerful, if I may say so, episode. Thank you very much. And I want to say to Michael, thank you for sharing with us your your own experience, your own insights and your own opinions. But also, I want to wish you all success and the BCs. Civil Liberties Association all success in the work you're doing along the lines you've been discussing. So thank you. I want to say thank thank you you to to send thank I want to say thank you to our listeners. And just to say quickly that with Family Caregivers Unite, We're starting a new research project called E-Qualitative Research, um, which this episode is part of. The idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as this this one that we've been listening to, and for you to share with us your experiences of healthcare. So please email me to hear more or to get involved. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on my show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Our next episode will be Patients Sue Ontario Hospitals for Invasion of Privacy. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.